Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Here is why you should tune into today's show. We've got breaking news that we are following surrounding BlockFi filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. We will discuss this and more with Tanya Reef, CIO of Senda Digital Assets, and Mike Belshi, the CEO of BitGo, which has just signed a deal to secure the FTX assets. I'm Jeremy Varlow. Moritz Siebert is with me. Moritz, how are you doing today? Jeremy, this is the first time you and I do this together. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm very, very excited about it. I'm very well also. It's it's really good to be on the show with you. Uh, we're going to get into things very quickly here. We've got lots to talk about. But first, if you are watching us on YouTube, please don't forget to like, subscribe, hit that notification bell so you never forget when we go live. Also, this episode of the Crypto Daily Briefing is brought to you by the Crypto App. The Crypto App delivers everything you need to stay on top of the world of crypto and your own crypto holdings, including a market-leading price tracker, portfolio manager, analytics suite, and newsfeed, as well as a wide array of customizable alerts and widgets to help you keep up. Crypto moves fast, so don't get left behind. With over 4 million downloads, the Crypto App is the market's leading app for all things crypto. Download the crypto app today on Google Play or the iOS App Store. Let's jump straight into the price action and get the ball rolling. Bitcoin has taken a bit of a turn downwards in the past hour or so. It's about down 3% on a 24-hour basis, but remains little unchanged from the past week. It is currently trading just around $16,000. On the other side, Ethereum has taken a little bit bigger of a hit today. It's down some 5% on the day, but remains up around 5% on a trailing seven-day basis. Ethereum is changing hands at just about $1,160 at present. Moritz, last time you were on the show, you mentioned that the price action was a little bit boring for you. What do you make about this price action? Same. It, I think it's like watching paint dry still. I mean, it's moving lower, but you know, from a trading perspective, I have absolutely no business trading these markets, and, and I don't. I was actually thinking about when was the last time that I traded any of these coins and tokens, and it's month and month and month ago. I have these two books, like, you know, one is long-term holdings where I have essentially Bitcoin and Ethereum, and I have them since years and years and years. They're still up. I mean, I'd like it if they were up more, kind of like, you know, back to November 2021 levels, but clearly that's not where we are. But all the other stuff that I, I do around trading, I, I haven't really done anything. The only thing is, and I wrote about this, I've got very lucky, no skill, just 100% pure luck. I was able to get some small amount of BTC off FTX just 30 minutes wow. before they closed the gates. Um, so that was just, you know, the, the, the one lucky punch. That was a transaction that I was actually initiating. And other than that, I just keep my fingers very quiet on the keyboard and don't interact with these markets at all. Yeah, I hear that. I keep kind of sitting on the sidelines thinking, oh, maybe it's time to jump back in. But uh, I'm just going to sit here and be patient and wait for a little bit more of this uh, to shake out and get a better idea of what's going on in the market. Look, look if, 
if everything, if anything, Jeremy, I think for for people who don't have an exposure to the space yet, and if you believe, you know, that distributed ledger technologies, whatever blockchain technologies mean to you, I mean, coin and token exposure, I think is actually something that's very different than exposure to the blockchain, whatever the definition of the blockchain is, because they're all very different. But if you have, you know, with that bear market, you know, with NASDAQ down and dollar up and inflation higher and yields higher and like everybody's portfolios are on fire, the trick is to still have some cash left at the end of that cycle. So if you have some cash left and if you believe in crypto as this long duration asset that has a bright future, then one way to do this is to essentially average in over a period of time close your eyes use whatever number is right for you you know a number x amount of dollars per week per fortnight per month just close your eyes and buy some of the stuff until you've kind of like reached the exposure that you want and then and then sit on that put it put it into storage and sit on it that could be a good trade uh i just you know i wouldn't be skillful enough to be quite honest to trade with these markets um and and, and generate alpha not with my pa type of setup i mean with with our business at, at exponential age it's kind of different we have other managers do that for us but like for me myself i probably just uh do more mistakes than than anything Amen. I myself am a buy and holder and put it in cold storage and forget all about it. Listen, let's jump into the top stories of the day. There's lots to talk about. Um, obviously, the big one that we are following right now is BlockFi filing from bankruptcy. This uh, basically came across our desk in the last hour. We are uh, keeping up with the information as it rolls in. But just to tell you what we know right now, crypto lender BlockFi has officially filed, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Uh, the proceedings for BlockFi and eight of its affiliates were kicked off with a filing to the U.S. court in New Jersey. The company has blamed the, quote, shocking events surrounding FTX. Moritz, perhaps this isn't a huge surprise. BlockFi obviously halting withdrawals in the last couple of weeks. What do you make uh, of all of this? No, Yoda, not a huge surprise. And, and and actually, that is one where I'm affected just, just a little bit. I have some, um, yeah, I... I I think I can say I still have some Paxos gold on BlockFi. And, and, and the reason I have that, I like being long gold. This is a way to be long gold and get, you know, a yield for it, which you really can't get anywhere else. I'm completely aware of the fact that they're engaged in a lending business. You know, there's no yield that is kind of like risk free. So something has to give. Now, what nobody knows or nobody knew is like, how does BlockFi actually run their business? I don't have any insights into that, but I would have assumed that like a professional lending desk or a professional business kind of like has counterparty, you know, diversification and kind of like credit risk diversification. Another word of saying, like, if you have um, a relationship with FTX, then FTX is supposed to be X percent of your book, you know, up to a cap, up to a limit. And then you stop doing business with them. You know, this is kind of like how lending desks operate. And then you have another desk and another desk and another desk. Nobody forces anyone to do 100% of their business. I'm not saying that they did that because I don't know the numbers, but nobody's forcing anybody to do all of their business with FTX. You know, you can do some of it with FTX and you can do some of it with Bitfinex or with other venues and counterparties in the market. This is actually, I think it's my hunch. I don't have the evidence in that. It's probably a risk management failure on counterparty risk. And that is something which in the last two weeks we have seen quite a bit of, um, both from crypto native type of traders from very experienced TradFi traders where you wouldn't have expected that. Um, and 
you know, people are, it seems, too greedy or too laissez-faire on risk during the good times. And when something really bad happens, you know, those risk management failures, all of a sudden they pop to the surface in like a left-tailed event. You know, it's very sudden. And now we see the end result and the damage. Yeah, no doubt. I want to go to our second top story before we bring our panel in. This was additionally the top story of the day, uh, but obviously the BlockFi news kind of took over that. But our second top story is Bitco recovers $740 million worth of FTX assets. Uh, Bitco has reached a deal to secure the remaining assets of FTX. Bitco helps institutions, obviously, to custody, trade, and stake crypto. Uh, according to the Crypto Times, the company has managed to recover $740 million of those assets as of November 16th. Now, obviously, that's just a small portion of what FTX used to own. Uh, we will speak with Bitco's CEO, Mike Belshi, in just a moment. But first, Moritz, your take on this development. Well, it's, you know, I think it's great. I mean, I, I love it that these assets are now with um, with BitGo. Um, I actually think I'm going to ask Mike in a second. There there, there has been a number, just uh, maybe 24, a couple of, couple of hours coming out, which is one point something billion or one of a quarter billion. So I'm not aware of the latest. Maybe Mike knows. Maybe it's now more than 740 million. Um, the interesting question is going to be, what is the recovery value going to be, if anything? Like, is it really going to be zero cents on the dollar? I don't think so. I say that because, you know, we're being contacted for all the wrong reasons because we don't have any direct exposure, but, you know, quotes are circulating in the market uh, by distressed credit hedge funds, essentially, you know, putting a bid or bidding on FTX's um, uh, assets. Obviously, you know, it's it's a bit an offer that's that's a mile wide. I'm um, not sure if you want to transact on that, but it suggests or indicates that the recovery value is likely going to be greater than zero, where exactly between zero and 100 is going to be remains to be seen. How long that it's going to take to figure all of that mess out is, you know, yet another story. It's likely going to be years, but who knows? I'll ask Mike about that. Maybe he knows more about it than I do. Um, but yeah, I mean, to answer your question, it's great to have these assets at BitGo. Yeah, certainly. Let's jump right into our panel discussion, then we'll bring in our guests. As I mentioned, Mike Belshi is the co-founder and CEO of Bitco. We are also joined by Tanya Reef, who is the Chief Investment Officer at Senda Digital Assets. Welcome, both of you, to the show. Thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. Hey, Tanya. Hi, Mike. Uh, Tanya, it's nice to see you again, uh, Mike, the first time. You've probably overheard us speaking on on like you know the FTX you know asset seven hundred forty million. I was just um, you know uh, speaking to Jeremy's like you know maybe Mike has more information than I do in terms of what the size of recovery values are, expected recovery values, how long that is all going to take to play out. What's the latest, Mike? Do you have any info? Well, I do have some, and I wish I could share more. I'm going to try to respect the various parties that are all trying to put this together in a responsible way. So most of what I'm going to say is probably already public information. Uh, just real quick, FT FTX, the new management, that's John Ray. John Ray is uh, currently the CEO of FTX. He's been brought in to, to handle you know, recovery through the bankruptcy procedure proceedings. Um, you know, His team found BitGo and said, hey, we need some help. Can you please help us you know, store and secure these assets? Um, he's also said publicly that you know, he saw a pretty big disaster inside of FTX 
Um, and I think uh, outside of the FTX US derivatives component, um, that matches what I think I've seen as well. Financial controls that were just missing, operational controls that seemed very, very lax, security controls that I'm not sure if they really existed to begin with. So in terms of overall assets that are to be recovered, um, the team there probably has a better view on it than I do. Uh, so yeah, the, the wallets, you can see them actually on Twitter. There's a, a lot of folks following the wallets. You can kind of look at the size of those and see exactly where they're at without me having to say anything. Um, I do think there will be more recovery than what's been done so far. Um, and remember, they were trading a lot at Alameda. So there were a lot of assets, I believe, that were out held at exchanges. And the community did a, did a pretty good job, actually, as the solvency insolvency emerged. They, uh, they started locking down assets, you know, kind of across the spectrum. So I think that will allow for the, the assets to come back and then be sorted out. Um, but exactly how deep the hole is or how, you know, what percentage of it is, you know, it's, yeah, it's going to be somewhere slightly greater than zero and, you know, uh, not a hundred. Um, but I don't, I don't know exactly where that's going to land either. No, nobody does. Uh, I guess we'll need some more time to, to zero in on that. Um, before we move it over to Tanya, um, another question, like it came relatively quickly in my personal opinion that you got appointed as the custodian for the FTX assets. How did that happen? Was it like an RFQ, an RFP where everybody was kind of like pitching uh, or, or were you, you know, selected and appointed and that's it? Look, I think there's been a lot of chaos uh, in the, the last couple of weeks, um, particularly around this. I think we have to look at, you know, the team that's handling the bankruptcy, not necessarily crypto experts. I think you have to look at the recovery that's being done from a company that clearly had a, a pretty severe lack of controls. Um, so the fear was that the assets were just going to all get drained. Um, and in fact, uh, I think it was a combination of security advice as well as custodial advice that they were looking for. Um, it was, you know, under an attack that was public uh, and where exactly those funds have gone, I do not know. And that we were working in parallel, I think it was two Fridays ago, three Fridays ago, um, to, to move every asset that we could back into, into something safe, cold storage. So who exactly had assets, access to the assets at FTX and Alameda, uh, I think is very unclear and will come out during the investigations. Um, was it an inside job? Look, without knowing anything else, I think it's quite likely. I think the house was burning down and it was being looted simultaneously. Um, and I'll, I'll say that that's just pure speculation on my part. I don't, I don't have any evidence, um, but kind of seeing what we saw, it, it would kind of line up that way. So, um, so yeah, we were called in in a crisis situation. We had a longstanding relationship with LedgerX. LedgerX, as you know, is a CFTC regulated uh, entity. They've been using BitGo custody since before they were acquired um, by, by FTX, I guess a year ago or so. So they had a strong understanding of what our capabilities are um, and what we could bring to the table. And so, so they sought us out. By the way, as you can imagine, the CFTC has been all over FTX US derivatives, verifying that you know it's solvent and whole and things are as they should be. Um, and they've been meeting that demand uh, very solidly. So that's, that's the one kind of shining light inside of the FTX organization. Um, the rest of it that's not regulated or under oversight or using third party custody, somebody that's, you know, a check and a balance and a regulated entity, um, mileage is going to vary on that part. Great. Thanks, Mike. Um, over to you, Tanya. You, uh, you are in a completely different uh, part of the space and the industry. You work for, well, you have your own hedge fund, Senda digital, I think it's called, uh, an emerging hedge fund. 
uh, I think a couple of months old, if I don't, if I remember that correctly. So how did how did all of that impact you, and 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 how did you fare? Yeah, so so thanks for having me. Um, undoubtedly, I uh, I'm running a, a liquid token fund, so uh, we invest in uh, in currencies, coins, uh, tokens, um, and not in uh, uh, you know companies or uh, uh, it's not a VC fund. Uh, uh, we're not investing in, uh, uh, in in illiquid projects or anything like that. And we've been running for about six months now. Um, it's been a it's been a tough run, of course. We've been doing well relative to uh, uh, to the market, thankfully. Um, but of course, it's very uh, um, heartbreaking what we have seen. Um, I think uh, uh, there are there are three things I wanted to highlight. Uh, one is to understand that part of what we've seen in FTX now, and as we've just been discussing, I, this is not legal advice, and I'm not a legal expert, but um, uh, clearly uh, it appears that it's fraud. If you take your customer's money and you use it to shore up your trading firm or your hedge fund or whatever it is, um, that's clearly fraud, and that's very concerning. And hopefully we can find a way to uh, uh, get the industry to standard of regulation and clarity and transparency where, where this can't happen again. Um, the second problem is the really, to what you alluded to before, is the really surprising breaches of proper risk management in the industry, reckless leverage, um, and that's a lot of what the fallout of this uh, is going to turn out to be. Um, we have seen, of course, uh, the BlockFi filing. Um, I think the industry, uh, myself included, and everybody that's in the in the liquid token industry, but also uh, even in the VC side of things, um, is uh, is really waiting to see what happens with uh, with Genesis, uh, what happens with Grayscale, what happens with DCG. Um, I think every Everybody uh, uh, is really concerned about what um, transpires there, and that appears to be also a problem of risk management and a lot of leverage uh, that works really well when things are looking good and prices are going up, and then really, really bad when things go the other way around. Um, so this is something that I think we're still struggling with. Um, as you said, it's very hard to trade these markets with lack of clarity and information. Um, we all have to be careful. Uh, that said, of course, the upside is that a lot of leverage has been already cleared up wiped up from the system. Um, hopefully the risks are becoming uh, more and more asymmetric here. So of course we could have further downside. Um, clearly at some point the uh, uh, probability of the uh, much higher upside than a downside is uh, is, is going to be uh, obvious for, for people to uh, uh, be comfortable re-engaging once, uh, once the dust settles from this. But I think the third point that I just wanted to add that I think is important here as a lesson. Um, I was after the Terra Luna crash in the uh, AMA Digital Assets Conference in the summer of this year. And a lot of the allocators and investors were claiming that it is better in these markets to allocate to VC strategies or to market neutral strategies or to yield strategies because the volatility of the outright long token exposure was too high. And I think there is a lot of confusion in mixing what is risk and what is volatility. The fact that something is less volatile doesn't mean that there is no risk. There is a lot of risk. And we have seen now that that risk means risk of counterparty, risk of uh, protocols like the Terra Luna that were unsustainable, uh, uh, risk of poor risk management. So I just want everybody to 
understand that if you like crypto because you like the decentralized aspect of having you know this uh, uh, community uh, this blockchain community that allows you to do a, a decentralized protocols maybe not you know there is a you know gradient of what's more or less decentralized but really that's what you're going for and then you ditch that because you don't want to take the volatility of the token and you think it's safer to invest in something that is centralized but it appears more stable and it appears less risk but that's not the case at the end of the day perhaps it makes more sense to have direct exposure to uh decentralized as decentralized as you can take it, um, tokens that have promise that are going to be volatile, but if they're well vetted, they're going to survive and thrive in the long run, than to get involved in these decentralized places that have a lot, a lot of masked risks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Very well said, Tanya. Actually, I'll come back to you um, once we've brought in Jeremy on the market outlook. But before we go there, maybe just real quick, how do you handle custody at Zenda? At Zenda, we actually are using Coinbase, uh, Coinbase Custody. These are uh, our custodians. We're also onboarding with Copper. Um, uh, I think they have an interesting solution. Um, so I think it makes sense to diversify our, our, our custodians. Um, and, uh, and I think uh, everybody should be looking to uh, a custody away from uh, exchanges and into uh, you know, as trustworthy as possible uh, custody solutions. I agree whether that's, you know, use a third party custodian, whether that's Fireblocks, Copper, Anchorage, you know, Bitcoin. I'm sure Mike isn't going to be offended that, you know, you didn't mention Bitcoin uh, just now. But hey, um, Jeremy, in other news, uh, the big thing that's circulating around Twitter and elsewhere is Binance and Binance's recovery fund. So, so bringing you back in, what's the latest on that? Yeah, so as we've seen in the wake of FTX's collapse, Binance CEO Chang Peng Zhao, better known, of course, as CZ, has announced that the company would launch an industry recovery fund. The aim was to help projects that are struggling with liquidity right now, but are otherwise strong businesses. Uh, CZ initially pledged a billion dollars to this fund and added another billion dollars worth of BUSD, which of course is Binance's stablecoin, last week. According to Coindesk, both Aptos Labs and Jump Crypto are among other companies that have joined the fund uh, to the tune of a total of $50 million. Moritz, this is a bit of an interesting issue. It was only a few months ago that FTX was kind of playing this role of the white knight of the crypto industry. And we know now that this fund from Binance isn't for everyone because obviously Binance refusing to block or to back FTX and reportedly Genesis. What do you make of this industry recovery fund? Well, I don't know. It definitely doesn't help the markets to go higher. Um, you know, if anything, they've moved lower. And I agree with you. I was completely, actually, I misinterpreted what I read. And you only have that many hours in the day. So I kind of like, I read the headline and it sounded like, ah, here's the white knight. He is going to rescue the industry, kind of like providing a backstop to losses or something like that. This is This was my first takeaway from it. But in reality, I think what we're looking at here, I'm not saying it's bad, but it's more like a distressed credit fund where I think he's looking to scoop up 
you know, stakes, equity positions in, you know, companies which he believes are good companies that have a right to win, which are having liquidity or financing issues at that point in time. So that's fine. But it's more like a distressed credit hedge fund, I think, rather than a recovery, like for the benefit of all type of collective fund. Um, well, let's bring in back uh, Tanya and Mike. What's what's your view on that? Mike, maybe start with you. Sure. Well, look, I applaud all efforts to try to make the industry stronger. Um, I think, however, especially talking about centralized versus decentralized, we have a real set of choices to make. So first off, this whole set of events should highlight back to everybody. I think Tanya said this as well, that you know the promise of DeFi is that we can get rid of these centralized dependencies. Um, so we need to be looking a lot more aggressively and a lot harder at how we just take you know, centralized risk off the table. Now, centralized risk isn't going to fully disappear. You know, people do like to use banks. They do, you know, trade their monies and, and whatnot. And you can take your money, put it on the exchange, trade it, and then temporarily leave it there and then take it off. But even that's not very good. We can build something much better. And I think what it comes down to is like, what's infrastructure, which is supposed to be risk mitigated so that everyone can trust it and use that infrastructure? And what's like a hedge fund? And, you know, where are the risks being taken? So if you look at... You know, traditional finance, you'll find, you know, hedge funds, hey, you can have a lot of risk there. Now, sometimes those can have blowups that are really, uh, re really uh, hazardous. You know, Bill Huang just, uh, what, six months ago, a year ago, I forget, um, at Archipagos, Arca Arca I forget. Um, you know, uh, obviously, can, hedge funds can blow up and have impact on, on others as well. But when you look at infrastructure, where you're talking about custodians, clearinghouses, exchanges, broker-dealers, like these are places where we use regulation to actually oversee and make sure we don't have just you know flat out fraudulent lies like what we had here with FTX. Um, so maybe a little bit to address the custodial question, um, you know, custodians should be regulated too. I mean, if you're going to be holding assets on behalf of others, use a regulated custodian. Um, and while uh, some of the custodians listed here, Coinbase and Bitco, are regulated in their efforts on that front, others, Copper and Fireblocks, are not. So. I think everybody that's using those as a reliance for how to keep things safe should should think twice um, and decide, is it a temporary thing that you're using? Is there a reason why you think that you can use those types of uh, custodians uh, or if you want to be using something different? Now, I'm not just trying to harp on regulation. I actually think all of us need to think about our counterparty risk uh, and our centralized risk. You know, even when you start to think about how you bring liquidity to market, um, you have risk on the other party. We saw this with Robin Hood over to Citadel, you know, uh, what, January last year, um, where, you know, there's these untold risks that are, are, are inherent in the way those trades are being constructed. And this is a place where DeFi can really help. Now, DeFi is not a panacea yet, right? We've got smart contracts that have lots of bugs. We got, you know, uh, a lot of compliance and uh, uh, regulatory things to sort out there. But technical innovation will bring those forefront. For me, the one thing I'm kicking myself most about kind of thinking about FTX and, you know, we weren't impacted by it. So it's not that kind of kick. You know, we've been pushing for market structure that would help avoid these types of problems. But I think we can push way harder. And while we've been fighting kind of slowly for the first step of how do you get separated custody from trading, you know, that's a good step, still a, a, a valiant thing to do. I think we need to go much deeper. All right, so in the interim, we're going to see a few things. Proof of reserves, a lot of exchanges are talking about that. It's good. Um, it's not sufficient because you can't prove 
uh, non-existence of liabilities, which you know really need to prove both the assets and the liabilities. And 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 how do you do that? You know, for infrastructure parties, you do that by way of audits. It's not perfect. It's not great. It's expensive. It's slow. It's cumbersome. Uh, can we make it better? Yes, but that is how you do it. Um, and then uh, also things like CZ's reserve fund. Look, I think these are these are good initiatives, and I don't think we should poo-poo it in any way. Uh, obviously, we've got to watch it, help him get better at it, you know, also help the industry get better at it. But it's also too early to declare that that would be a success by itself. Picking up one point in regulation there real quick, Mike, I mean, the, in, in some way, shape or form, the irony is that a lot of players in crypto uh, have always said, hey, regulators, don't even come close to my doorstep. And now that all the stuff has happened, you know, they're inviting them to essentially sit around the kitchen table with them, right? They want them very close, I I, I feel. Um, now, recently with FTX, I would have expected there to be an explosion like, you know, Gary Gensler going out like, and this is going to stop here and right now and right away. But maybe I'm not reading the right news channels. Um, he's been relatively quiet in my observation. I mean, do, do you have any update on where you think things will be going in, in the US with the SEC and CFTC and what the next steps are, because it seems like everybody's waiting for that, hopefully consistent and concise regulatory framework to come into existence rather sooner than later. Well, I don't think the regulator is going to save us. Um, look, they have a complex set of problems. There's lots of voices that want different approaches to regulation. Uh, they may or may not come down on SBF. Uh, there are questions swirling around, like, why is this guy not in jail? It's clearly a fraud. Um, and yet, you know, he had a lot of high, high, high power connected friends. Maybe that's influencing it. Maybe it's just the wheels of justice are slow. Look, I, I don't know on that. I think if we want to get past this, we have to start moving away from centralized entities. I think it's important to remember the technology here did not fail. You know, although this is, you know, attributed to Bitcoin or to crypto, no, those there were not failures here. What the failures were here was all on centralized finance. And when you have centralized finance, we do know how to deal with that in a much stronger way. Um, and in particular, I want to talk about infrastructure providers. Again, you know, you expect your exchanges to not be gambling with assets. I mean, in traditional finance, exchanges don't hold on to assets. It's, a, it's kind of a crazy construct to begin with, which is why you know, we should separate those apart entirely. But still, the problem of custody and clearing, those are regulated activities. And the reason you do that is to make sure that you can't have just straight up frauds like this. It's not perfect, um, but obviously it's better than the pseudo-centralized or pseudo-regulated centralized finance that we built so far uh, in crypto. So we can make that a lot better. I do think the technologists, the builders, you know, we should all be pushing to, again, just untangle every place where we have dependencies. Um, and traditional finance didn't have the ability to do this, so it's not blaming them for not having it. It's actually the blockchain uh, distributed ledger technology that allows you to finally get here. So let's get more aggressive as an industry fixing that side. And then, you know, the SEC and, you know, legislators, there's a good chance they're going to overreact now. Um, I think you could say they've underreacted so far. Um, and, you know, kind of given what's happened, you know, there's going to be a lot of screaming to do something. Um, I'm a little bit worried about what will happen there, but at the same time, you know, you've got to kind of let these, these, these wheels move. And then technology is going to solve this problem for the long term. That's where we really make it better. So let's get more aggressive at the original intent and purpose of, you know, what Bitcoin is, which is bring the power back to everyone take it away from just a few elites and start to make it really transparent and untangle these risks that we have 
that are uh, dependent on centralized parties. We can do this, um, but the industry has to really pull together to yeah. make it happen. I, I love what I hear that that's very good. And, you know, it's just using that momentum, that positive momentum to spin it over to Tanya. I mean, you know, it's it's very easy in these days, I think, to be entirely pessimistic about everything that happens in the space, kind of like, you know, it's going to zero, this will stop. It's also very easy for some that, you know, are invested to say, oh, you know what, at some point, and I think you've mentioned something like this, the, the probabilities will change and the likelihood of the next bull market increases and will move higher from here. You know, this might also be a little bit blue eyed. So, but honestly, when, when you think about tokens, coins, blockchains, what is it really that excites you? What is the application which you think, Tanya, will really move the needle? Because clearly it's not centralized exchanges building themselves around crypto where people can use leverage in order to trade in an intransparent way. So there must be other things what is it kind of like the one, two, three most exciting things that come to mind? So, so let me go back to actually what Mike mentioned. It is very important to understand that this was not a crypto failure. This was not a blockchain failure. This was not a technology failure. None of that was the problem here. All of the innovation that we've had with the blockchain, with these decentralized uh, systems with this exciting new technology, that all was working just fine. We had a problem of centralized finance, we had a problem of fraud, we had a problem of all these other things. If you were excited about the technology before, you are just as excited about the technology now, or even more so, because we've actually seen that some of the uh, decentralized players and sort of the DeFi actually have worked really well throughout all this mess. Uh, so it's important to understand that the technology is intact it's strong it's getting stronger by the day it's still being built on it and it's still going to improve after all of these debacle and it's likely going to get better over time that doesn't mean that there aren't projects that are going to fail there are going to be initiatives that are poorly designed um not all of them are just outright fraud sometimes I, there are very good initiatives that just didn't take hold and that ha that happens with any new and nascent technologies so we're going to find projects that are really exciting that are really good some of them may look good for a while and then they're going to fail those are just normal parts of innovation normal parts of inroads we see with a new technology but the technology is just doing what it's supposed to do and it's going to continue to do well. Um, let me also emphasize, because I invest in the actual coins and tokens. Um, you've heard in part of these cycles where, you know, this is going to zero, this doesn't work, is that the tokens are not what's important. It's not, you know, to, to go back to Bitcoin, it's not uh, Bitcoin, it's the blockchain. Well, that doesn't make any sense. The decentralized blockchain works because of the token of Bitcoin or currency coins, however you want to call it. It is important, it is essential for a public decentralized blockchain to have that token to reward validations. Now, of course, we have many other tokens that are all very, very different. So it's, you know, I always say you don't, you can't take, you know, Uniswap and say, oh, that's the Bitcoin for DeFi, because of course it's not the case. It's a governance token. It's something completely different. Um, but there are a lot of these uh, uh, tokens that are essential for the functioning of these decentralized public blockchains. If you have a private blockchain, you may not need the token and that's fine. And Maybe there are, you know, there are, there, are, there are opportunities for that. There's plenty of opportunities for these decentralized blockchains to work, and it's crucial for them to have these tokens and these coins that you can invest in. Sure. And these 
are likely going to stay and they're going to try thrive in the ones that are properly designed with good fundamentals and you know increasing adoption now which sure. ones are going to survive which ones are going to fail well we have to keep evaluating the fundamentals as we go along um some you know stay away from the ponzi stay away from the centralized ones and stick to as you know good a design as you can find and uh, i think that's still very uh, exciting yeah let, let me inter interrupt real there uh, real quick tanya because my, my question was really what is it that excites you what are the things that are going to move the needle you know is it all going to be just DeFi, cutting out the middleman and moving from t plus two to t plus zero and have you know that happen i think oh. that's all big but my question was really when you speak to people around Thanksgiving, what is it that actually happens in the blockchain? Like, is it all just centralized exchanges in DeFi? I think people expect us to give them some more convincing answers about, okay, here's something, here's a problem, a big hairy problem that is in need of a decentralized database that functions in a permissionless way, censorship resistant, you, you know, with Bitcoin, it's the monetary medium that makes perfect sense. That is one application that is one instance of a blockchain technology but i think we need to come up the industry with applications that happen not only in the metaverse but in the real world where people can understand it and my question to you is what do you think and you invest in these tokens right so for a yep. reason what are the ones that are really that we need that will change our lives like yeah yeah the so top one or two I think, well, uh, if you want me to actually mention the ones that I'm excited about, um, there, two, there are two separate questions. Um, I, I like Cosmos, I like Atom, I like Polygon, Matic. Um, I think those are, I think, Chainlink, Oracles. Um, I think Ethereum, I still think there is, uh, you know, we have the proof of work, proof of stake debate. Um, it remains to be seen uh, how successful uh, uh, this uh, change is going to be, but I think it's very promising. Look, I think there are many applications we can talk about. I think for me, the most exciting ones have to do with the fact that you can tokenize property rights in, in a digital way um, that opens up possibilities that we didn't have before. So the fact that you can um, tokenize, uh, as we've seen in an art gallery, is an art piece, so that you can have someone buy a piece of property and you don't have to buy the whole uh, you know, painting or sculpture or whatever, but you can invest in a smaller amount in a, uh, in a digital property uh, uh, fashion that opens up a lot of opportunities, you know, not only for um, art, for music, for all these things, but you can think about real estate, you can think about health, you can think about many uh, uh, applications where having digital property rights is going to make it a lot more frictionless and open up a lot of opportunities that we can uh, think are going to be useful in uh, in the real world. We've seen in some of these uh, developing countries that you can actually um, tokenize property to livestock and then you can trade that livestock and then you can um, maybe get loans on that, use it as collateral for periods of the year where you need the cash flow and then, um, you know, have the livestock useful for periods where, you know, it's more valuable and you need it less. Uh, so all these things are happening around the world. And I think, you know, the sky's the limit. We still don't know exactly how that's going to uh, evolve over time. But I think that's, uh, to me, an application that is yeah. that is very, very exciting. 
as well as I, I grew up in Venezuela. So you can imagine um, the amount of unbanked population around the world in countries like mine, um, access to some of these um, uh, digital dollars, digital uh, tokens um, uh, can actually be a safe haven for, uh, for a lot of people in, in, in many, many countries. Yes. No, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, collectively, I include myself in that and really everyone in the space, the clearer we become about the use cases and where they actually have value other than being an exchange providing leverage or like having a transaction happen on the blockchain, the better it is. And, you know, also with respect to property, I mean, a lot of that stuff goes into kind of like, yeah, it's an asset backed security. We have that in traditional finance, maybe not as eloquent and you know efficient as with a token but it's not really new it existed before it can be done you know you can do an asset back cattle transaction in an spv yeah probably takes you a couple of weeks to set that up and not everybody can participate for a reason regulators are then there like you know you probably don't want to have the whatever grandma here in bavaria take part in a tokenized cattle zimbabwe blockchain project so the, the thing I'm missing, and, and then we then we stop it, I move it over to Jeremy, is really oftentimes when I speak to people, it's, it's all this, it's going to be great. It's all of this decentralized and moving around. But specifically, what is the application? We're not repeating the question. If we can find better answers to this, there are some, you know, we would need to take that offline, but we need to articulate them clearer. And then I think that helps a lot of people to understand actually what's going on here. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If I could step in a little bit on this, sure. this topic, look, I think the industry is kind of, it's like we're in college and we're trying to take 400 level classes as though we're seniors when frankly, we're still freshmen. Um, that is, we do not know how to build these markets in a safe way, or if we do know how, we aren't actually doing it yet. We don't have the discipline that we've done it. And there's, there's lots of applications. I'm excited about NFTs. I'm excited about identity. I'm excited about the innovations haven't even come yet. And the, the long-term view that the entire world is digitized, I completely agree with it. However, we will continue to have failures if we don't think about what's in front of us right now with you know, these uh, you know, digital asset 101 type classes that we have to take, which is build decent markets. Um, and this, this is about building the infrastructure in a way that we can trade it globally that's safe. And I think there's actually two competing camps that you tend to hear. There's there's the, the Bitcoin only guys, and this is a little bit of a US centric view. And then there's the, you know, the crypto everybody guys. Um, I'm, I'm more in the, the latter camp, but the, the Bitcoin folks a lot of times say, hey, just regulate it the way you regulate any other asset. Um, but Bitcoin today has this you know, luxury that's kind of been given a pass as it's a commodity for both uh, the SEC and the CFTC, thereby making it so that it's not under the jurisdiction of either. You know, the SEC doesn't regulate commodities and the CFTC doesn't regulate commodities either. So saying that you just want the same regulation as we have in existing markets is sort of a, a cheat. It's saying, I don't want any regulation. And remember, Sam Bankman-Fried, 
although he was dealing with all kinds of assets because he was here to make money and defraud people, it could have been a Bitcoin only spot exchange and he could have been doing the same exact fraud. So Bitcoin spot exchanges are not immune to, to these types of failures. And having no regulatory oversight of what the infrastructure for how we trade these assets is going to be a problem. I do think we can get to decentralized markets that need a heck of a lot less regulation, um, maybe even almost none. But you know, the current markets are going to continue to fail. And we, we've seen it all the way back to 2012. Uh, you know, most people remember you know, Mt. Gox is the first one back in 2014, but there were several exchange failures, Bitcoinica and others, um, long before that. So it's time to get serious about fixing that fundamental layer. There will be tons of use cases, but if we don't get the exchanges built right, there's not going to be any money to be made on it because you're not going to have infrastructure that supports it. Good. Uh, we've heard the, the word failure a couple of times, and, and both of you said uh, this has not been a tech failure. I agree with that. So maybe move it over to Jeremy, where we can speak about maybe a tech failure on purpose or something that people have overlooked, but it has to do with tech, and it's about MetaMask. Uh, how, how, why don't you take it over, Jeremy? Yeah, for sure. And honestly, I could listen to this conversation all day. It's been super, super interesting, and I echo a lot of the same sentiments. One quick anecdote, something that I've noticed is my friends that have kind of gotten into the crypto space, you know, they're using a centralized exchange and buying some coins there in a market such as this. And with all the news that we're hearing, I would have expected them to kind of pick up their money and run and, and cash back out into fiat. But I've fielded a lot of inquiries and questions over the past couple of weeks about how do I download a MetaMask wallet? How do I start to like self custody my assets, which I mean, I think is just another bullish signal of people wanting to kind of stay in the space and have some sort of exposure. So uh, I'm, as Moritz said, I'm the blue-eyed optimist here, and I think that there is uh, there are certainly uh, better days ahead of us. But as Moritz mentioned, we also wanted to cover uh, the MetaMask privacy controversy that's kind of sprung up over the last couple of days. It's been causing some controversy on Twitter. Uh, so Ethereum software firm Consensus has revealed that it collects user data, and this is notable because Consensus owns MetaMask. The firm said that when using Infura, which is one of their products, as the remote procedure call or RPC provider on MetaMask, which is the default option, a user's IP address and wallet address information would also be collected. Uh, if a user switches to a different RPC on MetaMask, their financial data will not be collected. RPC is a protocol for requesting data and information from a program running on a third-party computer server. Uh, Moritz, uh, I, I don't know what to make of this. I'm not the biggest tech guy in the world. What are your thoughts? So why why are you asking me, Jeremy? <laughs> I'm not the tech guy either. Well, honestly, <laughs> well, I, can tell, I, I, I have can no answer. idea, but I can tell you one thing. I like a year ago or so when the only thing that you were allowed to talk about at dinner was NFTs, because if you didn't speak about NFTs, you kind of like missed the boat. Obviously, you got a MetaMask because, you know, this is how you do business in OpenSea. And it's like, I, I can tell you, I was scared. There's this fox looking at me from the bottom, from the top, from left, from right. It's like looking for me. It's like, okay, I connect that thing. It works. You know, I buy an NFT, OpenSea, whatever. I remove it. This is like, I've, I've used it twice, not since. I don't really know how that thing works. Um, I know how my ledger works. Um, that's important. But MetaMask, I mean, look, if these guys are now collecting IP addresses, that is very anti-crypto, to be honest. What do you think, Mike? Mike and Privacy is an area that we have underinvested in as an industry as well. Um, you know, frankly, 
we have the technology to do completely shielded transactions. Other people should not see how much money you're sending from one party to another. Um, we can still build all the compliance and controls that are needed. Um, but this is a huge problem. And it's not specific to crypto either. You know, Google has all of your location data all the time. If you have a phone that's got Google Maps on it, Apple's got it as well. Like we have a tremendous amount of information that we've given up to, to big tech. Um, and it's not specific to Infura. We need to invest in this heavily, uh, I think, as, as, as a people. And, you know, unfortunately, the regulators tend to think, oh, you're trying to keep it secret. Uh, you must have something to hide. That's not true. Privacy is very different from secrecy. And um, we absolutely can have both. This idea that you can't is ridiculous. But like, for instance, DFS right now, uh, any, any bit license holder is not allowed to you know, use shielded technologies uh, on blockchain, even though they are fundamentally better for privacy for individuals. So I think this is um, something that we just have to figure out how to, how to change. I do think it may be one of the last things that we're able to solve because regulators um, instinctively don't like it. Um, I do understand the problems that they've got, but I think we have to get back to basics of measuring what kind of surveillance actually works, what doesn't. Uh, we are able right now with blockchain technology to do the biggest recoveries of stolen funds ever in the history of of enforcement actions. Um, and we've seen a couple of them just in the last 12 months. So there's no doubt in my mind that blockchain technology you know, solves that problem better than all past regulatory solutions combined. But uh, we need everybody to get on board and actually start really pushing forward on privacy. Great, what do you think, Jeremy? Should we uh, jump into the viewer questions? Yeah, let's take a few. We've got a few questions here on YouTube. Uh, first from Andrea Gurley. Uh, what is the likelihood that BlockFi's customers will recover some or all of their funds? Obviously, this is just something that's come into light in the last hour, but I'd love to get our panel's thoughts here. Uh, maybe I'll start and then uh, toss it over to to Mike and Tanya. I, I don't know. I, I hope it's going to be a lot. Uh, depends on how much business they've had with um, FTX, potentially Genesis. I guess with BlockFi, there is going to be a recovery, but... Look, I, I really don't know. I'd be it's anybody's guess. So I I can't give you a qualified opinion on that. I'm sorry. Yeah, I can't give a qualified opinion on it either. Um, you know, the, these uh, types of operations, uh, I think they should be classified more into like hedge funds type of operations rather than you know retail you know yield generation applications. And I think if we fix the way they're classified, this problem will go away, and that the only people that will be exposed will be people that really fully understand eyes wide open exactly what they're doing. But I don't know how much recovery you're going to see out of BlockFi, unfortunately. And then Tanya, another we have question. a question for you, specifically for you, Tanya. Uh, do you think there's any hope left for Solana? <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 is, uh, it, it is a hard question. I think um, um, there's still, uh, I don't think we have full clarity. Um, I think it's uh, the headwinds are big um, here. Um, I'd be very cautious. I think there is a lot of opportunity and there underlying technology there. Um, it's not like the technology was all hoax. That's that's not the case. Um, there is opportunity. There is uh, there is something valuable there. But unfortunately, um, it got tangled uh, with all the uh, FTX saga and Alameda and. Uh, um, and, and now the, the recovery and the bankruptcy proceedings. So uh, how to trade that 
um, in the short term, um, I think that it's going to be very tough. That doesn't mean it's going to disappear necessarily or it's going to go to zero. I'm not ready to make that statement. I think there, are, um, I can see a path for its uh, survival and, uh, and and perhaps uh, um, a thriving in the future. I'd be very, very uh, cautious to, to trade it um, now because of all the uh, uncertainty um, uh, and uh, and I, I think we need more clarity to understand who owes what, uh, the vestings, the, the you know the proceedings. There's, it's just unfortunately tangled in uh, a lot of uh, um, the the, uh, the bankruptcy proceedings. So so I, I'd be very cautious here. Um, we'll wait and see. Thank you for that, Tanya. I've got one last question for the panel here. This comes from Ralph H on the Real Vision website, and this is in regards to regulation, which we've talked a little bit about today. What does the panel think of prospects of the establishment of a crypto self-regulatory organization in the US, and why haven't efforts to form one gained much traction? It seems as if the industry attempted to head in that direction with the formation of the Virtual Commodity Association, but it is hard to tell what happened with that effort. Well, let's see. I think self-regulatory um, hasn't proven to have a great track record in non-digital asset uh, uh, forums previously. Um, however, I think it does have a role. And there's a bunch of assets are good and bad. I, I, I think there's a lot. But um, again, I think if we get specific about what we're trying to accomplish and we use FTX as a measurement, of are the solutions that we're building actually capable of solving the problem we had with FTX? And if we get, get specific about that, I think we can absolutely do it. Um, now, some exchanges are starting this way already, um, where they do start to separate and build some market structure um, and get public about what they do. Providing bankruptcy protection all the way down to end retail, I think, is something that we can build, but it needs a little bit more work. And uh, I think the industry can do a lot. I think the industry is more likely to get to a place that will help the industry faster than regulators will, uh, especially given our global context. But I think also we're going to see industry fight a little bit, um, you know, especially right now when revenues are down, it's difficult to invest in, you know, self-regulatory protections that, that may be good for the long run, but you may just not have the revenue to go pursue in the short term. Um, so there's a lot of challenges. Uh, I think it's difficult. I'm not sure. I'm trying to figure out what I would bet. You know, what's the over under on whether it could be successful or not? Um, but that's my view. That's great. Thank you very much, Mike. We are nearing the end of our show today. And as always, uh, we finish with the key takeaways. Uh, I mean, our guests did a phenomenal job today and provided us a ton of insight and some great conversation. Uh, first and foremost, one of my key takeaways was from Mike. Uh, he was wondering who exactly had access to assets at FTX and Alameda. Uh, that is unclear at this moment, but he believes that the picture should become uh, a little bit clearer in the coming weeks. Uh, he does believe that we could see more assets recovered from FTX, but how much remains uncertain. Uh, Tanya made a very good point that surprising breaches of customer trust, risk management, and over-leveraging have really led to the current state of these markets and crypto as a space in general. And if we want to get past this, we have to move away from centralized entities and untangle 
where we have those dependencies. I want to go back to our guests very quickly before we finish uh, for their final thoughts. I'll start with yourself, Tanya. Well, I just, I'll just remind people, um, low volatility doesn't mean safer. Um, you know, be, remember that sometimes you get uh, low vol products, high yield products. There is a lot of risk in them. There's a lot of counterparty risk. Make sure you vet these things properly and, uh, you know, take a look. Maybe you are safer in uh, investment in a more volatile product uh, that has a lot of promise down the line. So on for liquid tokens. <laughs> Thank you, Tanya. And Mike, how about yourself? Any fa uh, final thoughts for us today? You know, I listened to a, a talk with Jesse Powell, founder of Kraken, a few days ago, and it was it was refreshing for me. Um, there's a class of folks that got into to Bitcoin specifically, but but crypto more broadly, back in that early era. And it wasn't about money; it was about changing the changing the system, making it better, making it more transparent. Jesse Powell has that. Brian Armstrong has that. I think the era of participants from that that time frame had to have that because there really wasn't. It was. It was it way too speculative uh, and the markets were even more crazy. Um, since that time, we've had a lot of people that are here to, to just make money. Uh, this is a great time for us all to go back and say, look, let's stop trying to make money. Let's build the system that actually works. Uh, we can build it. We will make money on the long haul anyway, um, but we have to really focus on it. It's a, it's a great time to, to be thinking about that. Fortunately, a lot of the parties that are only here to make money will drop out uh, right now because the market will be too uh, distasteful for them, which is fine, and we will come back stronger. Um, Bitcoin crypto cannot be killed. Amen to that. And lastly, I will go to my colleague and co-host Moritz for your final thoughts. Final thoughts is, look, we're dealing with an asset class that, depending on when you look, trades at 60 to 100 vol. Um, so get your coins off these exchanges. I don't see there is to be you know, any need for leverage. Um, I, I think I recommended like now might be a good time to average in if you want to have some exposure, if you have some cash left and can average in. And then finally, I think collectively we need to focus on communication and actually getting the message across more concisely as to what the applications are going to be that are really important on blockchain rails, um, as opposed to that just all being about, you know, trading and decentralized and centralized finance. Yeah, very well said. Uh, that is it for today. I want to thank our guests, Tanya, Mike, thank you for joining us and taking the time out of your day. We appreciate it. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank, thank you, you again. Bye -bye. Just a reminder that this episode of the Crypto Daily Briefing has been sponsored by the Crypto app. The Crypto app is your app for all things crypto. Download it today on the Google Play or iOS App Store. Tomorrow, we've got Kristen Smith from the Blockchain Association. You do not want to miss that. Uh, we will see you at noon Eastern time, 5 p.m. London, live on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Stay safe and have a great day, everyone.